Good morning. Uh, please lock the door behind you. Step inside and make sure the towel is positioned. Uh, you're walking in on another $5 buzz today. I'm here as always with my two uh, co-hosts, Pete Liska in Los Angeles. How are you doing, Pete? Bye, man. How are you? I'm doing great, man. Uh, nice Friday afternoon. And Roger Michael Mayer, also in um, Los Angeles. How are you? It's morning, George, as in 7.30 on a Friday. It's great. I'm doing fantastic. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad we could get you guys out of bed early because it's going to be a very special episode today. Uh, we have a guest here. His name is Stephen Fulop. He's the current mayor of uh, Jersey City, New Jersey. Uh, for those folks that aren't that familiar with Jersey City, it's the second largest city in the state of New Jersey. Steve, is it 250,000 residents? Close, is that to, close to 300. And probably when we get the census number in August, we'll be the largest. That's great. And I know that you've been really larger that. than Newark. Larger than Newark. So Newark and, I, and Newark and Jersey City are like maybe 15,000 apart, but um, we, we're just growing faster than anybody. I mean, if, you, wow. if you're if you familiar familiar with the area, like Danny probably could attest to this, that it's just, uh, we're putting up buildings that are, you know, 40, 50, 60 stories quickly. And so it's been happening over the last decade. That's wow. great. And I'm assuming that the COVID issues in New York City, are you seeing, uh, are you, a, is Jersey City a beneficiary of some of that exodus? You know, we're seeing, uh, we saw like occupancy rates drop to like the low 80s. Now, a lot of the larger building owners are saying that they're seeing them back to the mid 90s to high 90s, but they're buying back that occupancy with like really aggressive discounts. So, you know, you're giving three months free on 15 month lease. So uh, their revenue are down, which is, uh, which is fine, but uh, we're not great. But, but the city's occupancy and people is uh, kind of growing and back to where it was, which is a good thing. Oh, that's great. Uh, yeah. And just a little more background on Steve. Um, he uh, grew up in Edison, New Jersey. It's a great story if you're not familiar with it, uh, if you're not from the tri-state area. Um, Steve is a first-generation American. His parents uh, are both from Romania. He, uh, his, some of his other extended family, uh, unfortunately, were uh, Holocaust survivors. So, uh, you know, it's a very interesting story. Steve um, went off to college at SUNY Binghamton. And uh, Steve, can you, what words can you give us about uh, that institution? It's kind of risen in profile. You think so? Years. You know, yeah. I was having this conversation, George, I was having this conversation the uh, other day with somebody that I kind of feel like it's been stagnant, to be honest with you. I kind of feel like back in um, when, when we were going to college and applying, you know, so we're talking, I guess, uh, mid to late 90s, right. uh, Binghamton was like, a good school, up and coming, State University of New York, the best SUNY school system was, was Binghamton, the best school, uh, best school in the school SUNY system. And, but it was largely kids that were rejected from other schools, right? Like nobody had Binghamton as their first choice. Everybody was like, oh, I wanted to go to Cornell, blah, 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 blah. Now I kind of feel like that school is stagnant. And like a lot of schools that were taken for granted back then have uh, risen in profile, but, but I digress. But that's kind of my feeling. You know what? But they have in. they have been visible as in terms of like you know uh, athletics. I would say you know you see them in the the uh, final uh, March Madness tournament. I don't remember seeing that maybe once. Yeah. <laughs> no, okay. no, 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 no. Like I mean, like look, I when we were applying, my feelings on schools like NYU and and uh, and oh, Tufts yeah. and and some of those like better better more expensive schools were that if you were willing to pay. 
um, and you had the means to go, there was an avenue for you to get in, right? And the profiles were kind of like mid-level. Uh, they were good schools, but largely because they had a wealthier uh, community is how I perceived it at the time, whether right or wrong. I feel like those schools have become increasingly more competitive. Like NYU is like an Ivy League school now, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, when we were applying, it wasn't, right? I mean, anybody could have gone there. I kind of felt like, you know. No, you could apply for four SUNY schools on one application. I remember you got a really big bang for your buck back in those days. Yeah, I told <laughs> that's right. That's absolutely right. Now, the reason I bring up Binghamton, uh, Steve, is, I mean, uh, I have a fondness for all things SUNY. For uh, I know I think a lot of listeners know that. But SUNY Binghamton is where you met a guy called Paul Steele. And Paul Steele yeah. was one of my very good friends from high school. Uh, he was a very very gifted soccer player. Uh, unfortunately for him, he caught a slide tackle in, you know, a couple of days before the season started. And Sachem High School was coming off of a loss to uh, Shenandoah, which our, uh, one of our other guests, Pat Ryder, was a player for. So they were one of the best soccer teams in the state. You know, we're talking about some of the probably best. Instead of going to maybe a higher profile school, he winds up playing at SUNY Binghamton, which Steve, I think had a pretty good team. You know, those guys yeah. were all pretty accomplished players. So uh, Steo introduces me to you. I want to say I met you at a party in Garden City in like 1995. Do you remember a guy named last name Goodman? Does that sound familiar? Chad Goodman. Yes. I think I originally Pick. met you there at, in Garden City. And then Fast forward two years, 1997, Steo, myself, and another guy that we went to high school with, Ryan Schroeder, the four of us went down for a weekend in Belmar, and uh, that was a pretty fun time. Uh, yep. That's, and, but after that, I hadn't seen you for the longest time. The reason I bring it up is, you know, let's fast forward to 2007, my 30th birthday. Steo is coming to my 30th birthday party I have I'm having in New York City and he's like oh, Steve Phillips gonna be there so of course I'm really excited to see you I don't think I had seen you for about yep. 10 years before that and you know during this time not a lot of texting not a lot of social media so you know you went a long time without seeing people so you were you came in and we talked for a little while and you said hey I'm doing this Hampton share house and, you know, right. I grew up in Long Island and I really had no real interest at all to, to hang out in the Hamptons. But the next day you said, hey, I paid for you. You're going. Let's do this. So we did that. You know, we, we had four weeks at this share house. Not that exciting. But the reason I bring it up is the final week, I actually met a girl there named Stephanie Elliott, who went on to become my wife and the mother of my two kids. And uh, Steve, without you, you coming to my birthday, and meeting Steo, it's just funny how the universe works. These small little encounters have like this uh, fantastic wow, butterfly. George, I didn't know any of that. Yeah. And I, I tell everybody, Steve Fulop introduced me to my wife whenever I see. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, um, Steve, just um, and then we'll move it along. But I remember when you, you used to drive us from the city, myself, Todd Rothman, who you know, your friend from Binghamton, who yeah. is still an investment banker at JP yeah. Morgan. I mean, does Jamie Lewis, uh, Jamie Dimon ask him for DeFi uh, advice in the Eurozone? I mean, he's been working there forever, hasn't he? Forever, forever. I mean, I have no friends, and I'm sure you don't, that have been in the same job from uh, since they graduated college. And, and this guy has been for 20 some odd years. It's really wild, right? At the like, highest people, level of finance, yeah, Yeah, he's been doing, he, yeah, he's, he's done really well for himself, you yeah. know, really, really well. Happy yeah. for him. Yeah, me too. He's a great guy. So it was myself, you, um, Todd, and Mark Salino. And I remember you were driving us out there and you said, hey, guys, check this out. I think at that point you were 
we joked around. You were Tom. You were kind of like Tommy Carcetti from The Wire. I don't know if you remember talking. About I remember it. We The just Wire. Getting I still remember. And we, <laughs> yeah. t- we were sitting around the pool and people are drinking and doing Hampton Sharehouse stuff. And me and you were talking. We had a conversation. I remember you played this message uh, from Hillary Clinton, who I think at the time was a oh, yeah. senator. And she right. was thanking you for, was it right. a fundraiser? Can, can you refresh our memory a little bit about that? Yeah, well, so I, when I was running for, when I was running for mayor, uh, that was a little bit later. Wasn't that that one or no? I don't think you were running for mayor yet because this was 2007. So whatever. Right. Hillary, so, I, right. I want to say so, she was so, doing so, a fundraiser out east. Right, right, right. So, so she was running, right. So she was running for president, right? And she was the presumptive favorite. Mm-hmm. I was the outsider in Hudson County uh, and in New Jersey politics. And most of the institution um, around the country were with Hillary. But for whatever reason, the mayor at the time of Jersey City, the mayor of Newark, who was Cory Booker, went with uh, Barack Obama, right? Mm-hmm. And, and nobody thought Obama can win. It was an opening for me to actually get involved with the traditional Democratic Party, for better or for worse. So nobody knew Obama back then. Or nobody not knew many Obama. So it was like right. it was it was an opportunity to raise a lot of money for Hillary, have an event in New Jersey, and and try and build a relationship. Which my thought process at the time was, you know, of course Hillary's going to be the president, right? And uh, yeah. even if she wasn't the president, she'd stay as a senator for New York, which was a good relationship to have. Both of those two things I was wrong about. And, uh, um, you know, that's the way politics works, right? Like you make bets and, and you, you try to kind of think through relationships and meet people. And sometimes they work for you, sometimes they don't. That Hillary relationship actually helped me, though, uh, uh, eight year, uh, six years later when Bill Clinton came to Jersey City and did a big fundraiser for me, helped me out after I got elected to, uh, to mayor. So it actually worked out in a weird sort of way. Right. Well, that's great, Steve. And uh, I know these other guys have some questions, but I was yeah. wondering if you could just, again, for the people that aren't really um, as familiar as we are with your story, it's very interesting that, you know, the, I want to turn it back to 9-11. And I think we're going to hear a lot of 9-11 retrospectives because we're about 20 years out. In 9-11, you had uh, been working at Goldman Sachs. So you had a pretty accomplished career uh, in the finance world, can you tell us a little bit about you know working yeah. your way into Goldman and then the decision to jo- join the United States Marine yeah. Corps? Yeah. So look, I mean, I graduated college, SUNY Binghamton. I got a job at Goldman. I felt really fortunate. Um, started all out in Chicago. My girlfriend at the time was living in uh, New York, so um, Goldman was good enough to move me back to New York to work in One New York Plaza. I did that for a little bit and um, I was on a good track there. You know, I, I think I had a fairly good reputation. I was promoted every opportunity um, that was given to be promoted. Um, you know, on 9-11, I was in one New York plaza when the planes hit and uh, we were only a couple blocks away. You could actually feel the building shake. And it kind of just changed my life in the sense that, um, you know, I started to think a little bit about you know, how I wanted to look back at that time in my life and what types of things were important to me and just, you know, staring at Bloomberg monitors and, and working in asset management weren't that, wasn't that important. And uh, I decided that I would leave Goldman. I told my managers that I was going to leave and enlist in the military, the Marine Corps. Um, I didn't know a lot about the military at that time. So I kind of tried to learn and talk to recruiters. And then I went in on the enlisted side, headed down to Paris Island, and then um was amongst the first troops deployed. So it was like a really, really extreme change from Goldman Sachs to Paris Island, but probably one of the best experiences of my life. So, and I'm thankful that I made that decision. 
That's crazy. <laughs> That's yeah. just crazy. It's funny. It's an I went incredible from, story. I went from Chicago to New York before 9-11. I was there as well. It's funny. Um, I also, too, changed my life after 9-11. <clears throat> I hightailed my, my ass to Hollywood right afterwards, decided to make movies. So okay. you joined the Marines. I decided right. to make movies, you know, so you couldn't so, go in opposite directions. You know, it's pretty funny. It's their own, you know, it speaks to the fact that, first of all, it's wild. That's 20 years, right? I'm sure you it can is. attest to the fact yeah. that, like, it feels like it was, you know, yesterday or or, or a month ago. And uh, it's been 20 years. We're approaching the anniversary. And, yeah. you know, everybody was changed somehow, right? Like, so you went to California, you decided to do something different, move. Um, I decided to do something different, move. But like, that was the type of event that changed everybody. I'm sure like when you look back at kind of the last year and the pandemic, it'll probably have a similar impact on a lot of people. I don't know if people are going to enlist in the military as a result of that, but people are definitely going to think about what am I doing with my life? And is this really important? You know? Well, during this time, a lot of people moved out of California. California is the <clears throat> dropped in population steadily for the last three years for the first time in history. Yeah, and yes. and they moved all you know everywhere, but it, they moved to uh, the, the Southwest. They moved to Texas. They moved to a lot of places that you know Californians normally wouldn't go to. Idaho is a very popular spot for a lot of Californians. Upper Idaho, up near the uh, Stovepipe area. So yeah, I mean, it's there have been a lot of uh, people. Uh, what do you think is driving that, Roger? I think a lot of it is just that California right now has very high taxes. We have, you know, the housing rate is out of the, you know, out of this world. You know, uh, if you're a renter, you know, rents are way up. It's ridiculous. Um, You know, and there's a very, particularly where, you know, I'm from Southern California originally. So I've, I moved all around. And I I would say that, um, you know, there's a very large homeless uh, situation that we have here that's indicative of what the state's going through. Um, you know, I, I just, I can't, I can't really, beyond that, it, it just has to be just how much inflation has hit, hit here or how much, I don't know if it's directly inflation, but I would say that it's just a lot of people unhappy and wanting to go be able to live a life where they can own a, you know, a house or, or have property. And, it's and very expensive to, be... to live in Los Angeles and yeah. San Francisco. It's it's got it's very very expensive. And Steve, yeah, I mean, one other one... New York is like that though too. You know that Peter, like New York and New Jersey. You know we we don't have the same homeless you know crisis. We obviously have a challenge around homelessness. Not to the extreme. Well, we got better weather, so that that helps. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. I mean, we we definitely have a cost of living challenges. No question about it. And, and housing prices are through the roof. And one of the biggest issues in the city right now is kind of affordable housing. So we're talking about that nearly every day. As you guys, we have are. You seen, have you seen a rise in uh, homelessness in Jersey? We've city? seen we've seen a rise in homelessness and and you know a lot of mental health issues around the homeless That's population. Right. right. So yeah. You know, for the first time, you're seeing like more crime in, um, like, in the New York subway system, and even on, you know, path trains. And a lot of the time, it's you know, uh, people who are uh, suffering from really severe mental health issues. And you didn't have that before. And you know, I like a couple right before the pandemic, I was in San Francisco for uh, a World Economic Forum kind of uh, uh, convention, so to speak. And and I was in that Tenderloin area briefly. 
I mean, that, that, it's a that part is of a, town. Well, no, Tenderloin's rough. always been like that, Steve. I've lived there back but, in the uh, 90s. It's always been like that. That is like, that is like an extreme situation there. I mean, yeah. you see like really open drug use and, and really mm-hmm. mental health issues. And, you know, it, it is that, that, that like speaks to like the problem there. I've never been there before. That was my first time, mm-hmm. right? And, and maybe you're accustomed to it living in that, in that environment. But, you know, you, you, it opens your eyes to really struggles that some of these people have. That, that used to be Most the definitely. fun part to go to. I mean, <laughs> it depends what you define as fun. I guess that's how you look at it, right? Steve, I've been, from what I've been reading, uh, just as you know, an outsider, I don't live in New Jersey, but it seems like yeah. Jersey City has really kind of prospered in this difficult time, whether uh, it be, uh, you know, good relations with the police department and the fire department. You know, one of our good friends, Kevin Phillips, is uh, a fireman in Jersey City. And I think uh, he was at a ceremony where he, um, you might have even been present and he speaks very highly of you and the work you've done. And how do you think that, um, you know, based on some of the challenges, the police force yep. in, at large were uh, encountering, you know, last summer, uh, you know, with, you know, many high profile events, how do you think you've been able to m- balance the equilibrium of police, uh, you know, law enforcement, but also respective yep. of, um, you know, everyone's uh, rights and um, freedoms. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think that, you know, where we are as a city is where most Americans are, that they appreciate the police. They recognize that the conversation we're having around uh, what policing looks like in the 21st century is a healthy conversation to have. And uh, at the end of the day, though, they might want reforms to the police department, but they're not advocates for defunding that. And, you know, from a discipline standpoint, you'd be hard pressed to find another mayor in New Jersey that's fired more police officers than, than we have in Jersey City over the last couple of years, that if you act wrongly, we, we are very aggressive with discipline, no question about that. But at the same time, you know, police officers aren't wrong every time they use force either, right? And, and you got to appreciate it's the a fact. Catch, that, it's a catch-22. Yeah, it's a it tough is. situation. It really is a tough situation. So, um, you know, I'll give you an example. Like yesterday, we were just talking about kind of transparency around discipline and, and a disciplinary matrix. And you get into the situation where is if it's if it's too lenient or perceived as too lenient in this environment, the advocates are going to criticize you as being kind of too too far on the police union and police officer side. If you're tor- if you're too strict you're going to create a culture where police officers aren't going to work, right? So if you think you're going to be terminated for every little thing that you do, a police officer is going to say, I'm better off not engaging with the public, right? And so that's kind of the tough spot that we're in. We're trying to find that like delicate balance between the two to keep law enforcement moving forward in a positive way to keep communities safe. And and, and I, don't, I, I don't know, you know, how we solve the conversation that we're having nationally, but at some point, you know, we have to be honest with ourselves that we are seeing an increase in gun violence across the country in a lot of cities, um, and that police officers do play a role in helping stop some of the violence that we're seeing. I mean, I, I feel like those are not controversial statements, but in today's world, for some reason, they may be, you know? So I, I just think that, like, we've tried to find that balance and be supportive of the police officers, and at the same time, the ones that are wrong, we discipline. But um it's, it, it's a hard time to be a police officer and it's a hard time to be in government dealing with police officers to find that balance. But the police have a, and I'm just, I don't want to get too, too heavy on this, but go ahead. I mean, what, what, what is, okay. But what is the role of police? What should be their role in society? I mean, I was just thinking about this yesterday. 
as I was sitting in Uber, looked over to protect, to protect and serve, you know, says right on our, on our police uh, cars here out in yeah. Los Angeles. And, you know, I know that the police started, you know, as they started in the United States down in the South to go capture slaves. They started in New York to protect the rich. So what does the police force really have to serve in society in the United States now? What are their role? And is, is, should is they, that, should is they, Go ahead, Roger. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to ask. I mean, and should they have to deal with all the crap that they have to deal with, or can we alleviate some of that so they can better serve us and protect us? You know, I find that the the police are, you know, they they oftentimes have so much on their plate. I mean, should they deal with the homeless population? Should they have to go deal with evictions? Should they go have to go deal with mental health problems? You know, they have to end up dealing with a lot of that stuff that is beyond their purview and or their training and it ends up escalating problems and that's one of the situations that's been you've been finding happening more and more often in society but roger does it does it always well i I would push back on the fact that i don't know if it's true on um your definition on why police officers uh exist to begin with and how they were founded i don't know if that's factual but like um that's fair we can look it up though we can look it up (laughs) but like uh I, i i i I, I have a hard time with that definition, but look, when when, when somebody calls nine one one and uh, their life is in uh, danger, is the reason that they're generally calling nine one one. They don't want that recipient uh, or the of the call, the nine one one operator, asking, "Would you like a social worker to come out there? Would I, should I send a nurse along?" They're calling nine one one because they feel that they are threatened at that moment, and they want a police officer to come and help them. Right. So I think in practice, it's very very hard to kind of decipher between some of the nuances that you touched on earlier, and it, it's 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 easy to kind of say, well, of course they shouldn't be dealing with mental health issues and social workers should be doing it and all of those things. But often when the calls come in, it's very, very hard to separate those things. Very, very hard. Now, if you, if you, if you said that there was a mental health issue and you uh, put a social worker to be a part of that, right? And somebody was in, at risk. Violence, yes. Violence. The social worker would never enter the building anyway without the police officer. I, I understand I've, that. What, what I mean by that is, though, Stephen, couldn't they also, I mean, at the time, couldn't a police officer make the assessment and call in that person at that time? They don't well, even have that. They don't even have generally that kind of backup. That's all I'm saying. I mean, they don't. Uh, they, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. You're, you're saying that they don't have that. They should make that assessment when they get there. And, and especially in, they might have that in New York. A little bit more they might have that in los angeles but they don't have that in small towns you know the police in small towns is usually somebody who you know a lot of listen i have family that are police officers so and we're we're constantly we love each other but we also go back and forth a lot you'd be hard you'd be hard pressed to find someone that doesn't from any political point of view or socioeconomic point of view that doesn't have someone related to them or a friend that's in the civil service, like the police. I think that's pretty accurate, right, Stephen? Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's right. But Roger, I, I I don't disagree with that, but I think what you're talking about is a training issue, right? Yes, I agree. Yeah, and, and um, but I think often in practice, it's hard to, you know, well, let me say, it's easy to be the Monday morning quarterback and assess the situation each time and say, well, he should have done X, Y, Z. And when they're in the thick of that moment, most of the time, the 
it, it's difficult to do that, even with even with training. Somebody who like, um, you know, look, I, I was in the military, right? I know what the training is and what the practice is when you're deployed in this situation, right? There, there, there's differences there. Just you know, speaking kind of from a personal person who has dealt with as that. an ex jarhead. Yeah, so <laughs> just so like my own man. Yeah. It's 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 uh, it's a it's a fair point that you're making around training. I just think ultimately, you know, the criticism that police have seen by and large over the last uh, year doesn't speak to every police officer, meaning that like you got your your examples, like obviously what happened with George Floyd and Chauvin, right? But like, right. that's not every police officer, right? right. And, and, and you shouldn't paint that brush that everybody in that profession has that perspective. I, I would agree with you. I mean, but I have a lot of African-American friends who would paint all police officers with that kind of perspective. And that's a very difficult situation. Um, and, I, and I agree, you know, and, and, and it's hard for me to have that conversation and try to stick up for the police when I, I know I have friends who have never had any positive experiences with police officers. And that's just, I don't know if that's a Los Angeles thing. I don't know where Chicago or big city thing. But it's it's a difficult situation, and I, I feel for the police officers. I really do, and I, I and I agree that I think it's a training issue, most of all. So we, we, we agree on that. Let's let's switch well, you know, gears. Roger, can I just say that in, in Jersey City, where where the defund the police conversation was was happening here, I mean, we had our rallies, and there was there was obviously a, a big presence at council meetings pushing that narrative. That narrative was not being pushed by the African American community that live in the hardest hit neighborhoods. They were it was saying we want by more a bunch resources. of rich kids who come out of college. I, I know yeah, what it that's was. Right. I, that's I, right. I, I that's understand. That's right. Yeah, I, I, that I get it. The trust of doorman, nice buildings. You know, like it's I, I, that. That's the narrative. I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about defunding the police. I'm talking about can we do better to help them? That's what I'm yeah, trying to. That's, that's what I'm that's trying fair. to get to. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So, all right, let's switch gears. You know, I just wanted to say, you know, like you left um, Hollywood. I mean, um, you joined the Marines. What, what was that like? I mean, what you went from Goldman Sachs to joining yeah. the, the Marines, man. And then you get deployed out to, uh, you know, to go to hot zones yeah. across the, you know, the world. I mean, what, what, yeah. what the hell? You went from one war zone to another, but I mean, They're one's different. way different than the other one. Well, let me just say that the, the military was one of the best decisions I ever made. It, it changed my life as I became more disciplined in what I do. I appreciated people more, different types of backgrounds that I never had been exposed to. Um, so military changed me in a lot of ways in Marine Corps. I, I, I think people at Goldman thought I was absolutely crazy, right? Like um, when we were deployed, it was literally a Friday that they told us and they said, come back on Sunday with your will and your power of attorney. And you know, we're leaving on Thursday, you know, like I went back, I was at Goldman at the time. Um, and uh, I told them that we're being deployed the next week. It, it was just like a very surreal time. I mean, I wrote a letter to everybody I know, a big email, um, thanking them for being part of my life, right? Not knowing what the future would hold, um, like real heavy stuff. And then, um, you know, we were off to, you know, Kuwait and then gradually up to Baghdad, you know, and over the next seven months, sleeping in a tent with a uh, some guy, Jose, and uh, it was like a two-man tent for uh, seven months, showering once wow. every couple of weeks, you know, if that. It was just a crazy experience. And, and it's, 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 it made me a better person and, and more appreciative of, uh, like I said, different types of people, different types of experiences, different types of backgrounds. So 
I think that that um, I would be in a very different spot had I not made that decision. So I'm thankful that I did. And I'm, I feel lucky that it worked out for me because a lot of people were hurt or um, unfortunately killed and they didn't have that same luck where they came home and, and they signed up similar to the way I did. Wow. You know, it speaks to uh, it speaks to um, your general demeanor, I would say, the roundedness of having of being in a Wall Street situation and then being in the military can only serve to, I would say, help you understand and relate to people. Um, and, and, you know, probably serves you well in your career. Yeah, I, uh, I, I think so. I mean, look, I, at Goldman, I was making good money for a kid who was like 23, 24, 25, like really, really good money and on a really good career track. When I went to like uh, Paris Island, I, I could tell you that like, you get these like core frame shoes that are like part of your dress blues. And they're like, you know, those real shiny look like tuxedo shoes kind of thing. And I scuffed them and my drill instructor was like really upset at me and like really tortured me for a little while and just yelling at me, like, where am I going to get the $40 to buy new shoes? <laughs> right. Oh, man. And all I could say is like, yes, sir. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. Wow. Sure. But like, it's like a different perspective that I had, but I could also appreciate that. Like that's where a lot of people are. Right. And, and, you know, a lot of people in my platoon and my company like made the decision to enlist because of the GI Bill or career opportunities. And, and you gain appreciation for the people in the military, why they're there. And, um, you know, prior to me being a part of that, maybe I didn't feel it the same way, but I definitely do now. You know, um, yeah, that's fascinating. And uh, I also have to, it bears mentioning, um, you mentioned, you said earlier that your uh, family is Romanian, your first generation born. Yeah. Uh, in America, I can relate. I'm first born. My family was Czech, and they escaped communism. And uh, and so I'm also first born on my father's side um, in America. And also speaking with George, I found out that um, your family had you had a family deli. I also yeah. my family also had a family deli up in Plattsburgh, New York. Oh, <laughs> really? My dad. my dad wanted to bring a New York style uh, deli up to uh, to New York. Um, and also, it kind of leads into you know we're we're around the same age, and a conversation that um, Roger and George and myself have a lot is that the age of the politicians that are leading us on a national level seems to be not <laughs> representative of what the yeah. country is. Meaning, more Generation X folks like yourself, I feel there's a very big need for that to. Uh, to come into play. And then, and so in, you see, you're looking at the primaries from this last year and for the presidential election, you've got guys like Pete Buttigieg, who I absolutely thought was probably the best option. I mean, you know, as far as I was concerned, yeah. he was young, also military service, well-rounded and seemingly very educated on the issues. And, uh, and I, I've found him to be a, an incredible option. Um, just across the river from yourself, you have former uh, primary candidate Andrew Yang, who will be who may be your uh, counterpart in New York City. Um, do you find that to be um, a good a good move towards making our bigger politicians, you know, more consistent with what the population actually is, Generation X, and maybe kind of sunsetting the. Uh, the older baby boomer mentality of leading so, uh, I, to, put think, it, to put it mildly. Yeah. I, I think so. Two things on that. I, I think Peter, you probably need some changes on, you know, term limits and conversations around, around that at the federal level. 
and you probably wouldn't get these people staying for 20, 30, 40 years. Um, and, uh, and the second part is, you know, there, there's, there's, there's holes. Yeah. Which would be great. I, I, I do think so, but there's, there's, uh, younger people don't participate in the electoral process. That's the problem, right? So True. you have the older people that do, you got to actually find ways to get those younger people excited beyond just the presidential elections, because everybody votes in the presidential elections. The thing that really impacts you the most is, you know, who's the mayor of San Francisco, right? Local who's politics. the governor of California, right? Local stuff at the end of the day, that impacts like the police conversation that Roger and I were just having, right? Like That's those right. are like ultimately, the, the real things that touch people on a day-in, day-out basis. And, uh, um, you know, most people don't get involved in that. You know, they're, they're, they're more interested in tweeting about what's, what's mm -hmm. happening in uh, the Middle East today and, and less interested in, in tweeting about, you know, the police issues that are facing uh, San Diego or San Francisco or L.A., you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't like to, to espouse too much of a political opinion, but I do think it's fair to say that de Blasio, you know, he didn't do great on the national stage in the primaries. I I've not heard much out here. The news coverage he gets is very poor and yeah. <laughs> seemingly by the, by, by all accounts, he's not right. done the greatest job with New York city. And does that hurt you guys as Democrats when you have Andrew Yang coming in following up that, how does that, how do you recover from a kind of a, a blunder, if you will? And if it was a blunder, maybe it wasn't, but this is what I'm, I'm gathering, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I look, I, I think that the lesson, you know, so whether it's Bill's de Blasio's fault or it's not, uh, the last eight years have felt like New York City has moved backwards in many ways, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, he has some accomplishments that I think are meaningful, like the universal pre-K, for an example. But like, I think that people feel the city is less affordable, more unsafe, uh, more homeless issues, uh, less quality of life, and that ultimately falls at the mayor's lap. You know, it, it's really hard to build a city, and then it's really easy to do damage, right? Like, I think that it's not equal what it takes effort-wise to achieve both uh, results positive versus moving somebody neg negatively. So for me, I'm, I'm watching that mayor's race across the river really carefully because we're tied into it, you mm -hmm. know, for better or for worse, you know, we, we, we benefit when New York city does well and, and we hurt when they're not doing so well. And, and I don't know what the impact will be for us if we have another four or eight years of, you know, not really moving the city in a positive direction. If, if you go to New York today, you definitely see more graffiti, you see more homelessness, you know, clearly the energy is different, which is nobody wants that, you know, did you, you know, we were speaking about an, a mass exodus from from Los Angeles, have you yeah. been experiencing that have has the tri state area or New York City, particularly Manhattan experiencing the same thing or, you know, are people hard, getting hard out? to tell? hard to tell, you know, you, you hear a lot of conflicting stuff that people are moving out, moving to Florida, getting out of there because of taxes. Then you hear that people moved out temporarily, people are moving back in. I think, you know, we'll see over the next six to eight months what it looks like as we kind of get back to normal. And uh, we'll see kind of does New York City rebound? I mean, look, it's a resilient place. It's, it's really, really a special city. But, you know, you, you also need to feel safe. And I think the biggest challenge there is kind of the safety thing that's happening right now, where, you know, you, you two years ago, you weren't reading often about people being thrown in front of a, a, a train at the, the subway station. You read that now more on a frequent basis, which is like a yeah. scary thing because that makes, you know, that makes somebody think differently about going down into that platform two, three years ago, nobody would think twice, right? They would just do whatever. 
So that's changed. But hopefully the next mayor is somebody that is reasonable and understands that safety is one of the core responsibilities of being a mayor, and, and they need to really focus on that. Stephen, talking about elections, uh, what's your point of view on uh, voter ID uh, issues? I know that's something that comes up a lot nationally, and um, yeah. everyone probably has their own perspective. Is there any uh, Look, things that come to mind? I, I think the voter ID conversation gets uh, put together with making it more difficult for people to vote, right? I, I don't subscribe to this uh, theory that there's widespread voter fraud. You know, I know, you know, Hudson County used to have this reputation in Jersey City. I don't City think anybody where, really does. I think they just yeah, use that. The, the former the former governor, this guy, Brendan Byrne, used to say that uh, um, w when he dies, and he passed away a couple years ago, but when he dies, he wants to be buried in Jersey City so he could stay involved in local politics, right? And uh, that 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 is maybe in the 1950s, 40s, 60s era. Um, not so much anymore. So, you know, for me, like you want to create less barriers, George. That's what it comes down to. You want to like allow people to vote as easily as possible. That's really what it comes down to. I think that makes a lot of sense. And Steve, um, just as we're talking about national politics, two politicians that I really tend to gravitate to, maybe it's just because they're from Generation X, but also um, similar to you, they have military service. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard, who I really was going to vote for president. You know, here you have a woman with military service, non-white, real congressional experience locally in Hawaii, but also in DC. I really like her. And also uh, Dan Crenshaw from Texas, who was uh, a Navy SEAL, I believe, who's pretty yep. outspoken. Uh, do you have any thoughts on those type of Generation X leaders? Uh, are you paying attention to them? And is it more significant to you that they are uh, military, um, former military Look, people? I, I uh, definitely the military service component means a lot to me being that, you know, the federal government and uh, those elected officials have a lot of influence over that. Um, but at the end of the day, for me, George, like I look at like the federal elected officials at the House and the, and the Senate, and it is, you know, there, unless you're a Schumer McConnell, uh, that's me, by the way. That's fire trucks. Fire I was going to say, who, who's that siren going? As long as it's the yeah. mayor, I'm he's, okay with yeah, yeah, He's in Jersey yeah. City. Yeah. <laughs> if, uh, if, unless you're Schumer or McConnell or Pelosi um, or McCarthy, you don't really matter, right? Like that's, what, that's, the, that's the system that we have today. So it, it's hard to say, look, I really like whether it be Crenshaw or AOC or McCarthy or Pelosi. At the end of the day, like, if you're not in leadership, you're not really making decisions in Washington. That's the way I see it today, right? You're told how to vote. 99% of the time, you're in line with what they tell you because that's how the system is rigged today. And, and that's it. So it's just, to me, like it's hard to really get into any of them and be like, wow, I really find that person inspiring because they're just a product of the apparatus down there today. That's how I view it today. So Steve, how does Gen X put their stamp on it? Because that, you know, quite honestly, Steve, that 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 type of thinking, and I know that you have experience with that those archetype of lifelong politicians like uh, Menendez or Chris Christie, where you know what is their area of expertise? Why should we be following them? And we're seeing it in real time, Steve, as you know, with uh, Menendez's son. What is this gentleman's area of expertise? You know, now he's on the board of the Port Authority. How do we feel confident about his ability to navigate, let's be honest, the corruption and the, the lack of regulations in a big organization like the Port Authority? Let's, it's not known for its financial uh, soundness. 
why should, you know, I'm just an agnostic civilian taxpayer in the state of Connecticut. But when I see this happening in real time, it's the same old shit, different rapper. How do we get this boomer mentality out of the way and have some folks like you or a Tulsi Gabbard or or Crenshaw come in? And why do we have to accept the status quo? I mean, it's, it's really disappointing yeah. just to put it mildly like now we got another menendez was up for some very, very serious allegations and you know maybe it was whitewashed over maybe he had the best lawyer from you know sladen arps or you know named the white shoe law firm that he had direct access to you know and, and it's disappointing as much as people say and i would include hillary clinton too steve is hey you advertise yourself as a progressive thinker, but hey, you're a war hawk. You're pounding the table. We don't need. Hillary Clinton said we didn't have to leave Afghanistan. I know I'm uh, rambling on here, but that's all right, George. Keep what going. Are you, what are your thoughts on these legacy, old world, moneyed, um, I, I mean, nefarious yeah. individuals like Chris Christie? Now he's on the board of the New York Mets with Steve Cohen. I mean, when was that deal <laughs> discussed? You know, behind our sleeping backs. Yeah. Look. I, I, I think there's a lot of frustration. It goes back to what you know Peter and I were talking about earlier. You got to get younger people involved in the process at every level, right? Not just in the presidential years, and then you're going to get change. That's what it comes down to: um, educating them on the importance of it and engaging them. Otherwise, you're going to have the status quo. That's just the way the system works. So I, I wish I could tell you that there was an easy fix. It's educating young people on the importance of being involved in local elections. And ultimately, their impact will change that because they're going to vote for people that are more in line with their views. And that's like kind of a generational decision often. As you said, term limits is a term good limit, place you know, Term to limits start. would go a long way to solve that, right? Like term limits would go a long ways to solve that. You know, what that number is, is it eight years? Is it 12 years? Uh, is it four years? I mean, who knows? But like... Like it definitely is in 30 years, right? Like I can tell you that, right? So Does Jersey City have term limits? We do not. I mean, nobody in New Jersey has term limits and you're not allowed to put on term limits by state law other than the governor, which is two mm-hmm. terms. So um, do I think that we should have term limits in New Jersey? I do, I do, I think so. You know, like being being in this position though, you know, I probably took for granted how quickly uh, Four years. I flies. thought how quickly, yeah, how quickly yeah. like things uh, move or don't move. Rather, like the government is slow, right? Yeah, so it sure is. You you could start a project and it could take seven years, six years, mm-hmm. easy, right? So, is the right number twelve years? So three terms? Is it uh, less eight years? And then you just hand it off to a next person? I mean, I don't know what the answer is there. It's not four years like Virginia has, right? That's not the right answer, but it's also not, you know, 20 years. So it's mm-hmm. somewhere in between there. Yeah. So, I, remember, I, uh, I remember when I lived in New York, um, I believe it was Bloomberg that was, because New York City mayor, mayor opposition did have term limits of two. Yeah. yeah. And somehow Michael Bloomberg managed to change that for yeah. himself. Yeah. yeah, he changed it and uh, got a third term in there. That's right. That's right. And for some strange reason, he thought people would have an appetite for him at the presidential level. <laughs> right. Go right. figure. That didn't work out. Um, Steve, uh, I know that you're you're, F- you're FDR probably still in that mess. Yeah, I know that you're looking at probably a likely third uh, term. I know at some point, um, and good luck with all that. By the way, any way we can help, I, I'd love to. Um, yeah. 
in any small way that I can. <laughs> um, but I know at some point you were thinking about uh, higher level, um, you know, positions within the government. Have you thought, and I know it's really early, but do you, yeah. do you consider uh, yourself staying in public service or is there any interest to go back? It, it, are the days of, you know, financial services or private equity, is that over or do you see, you know, or is it something else? You know, what does the future hold? Like, yeah. Uh, what so, so I don't know what if the I go hell back are you going to do in the future, Steve? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So let, let me say this. I, I, I'm not really interested today in, in that Washington conversation for the reasons that I said earlier. Right. I mean, um, I mean, George, you got little kids, right? I mean, you know how important that is, the family structure, being around, um, time you can't have back. And I'm not one of these people that are willing to kind of trade that away for some title. That's just not how I'm wired, right? And so I know people always think, oh, he's going to angle for, at least in New Jersey, in my world, right? He's going to angle for this Senate seat or this House seat. And those are things I'm really not interested in today because, um, you know, time moves pretty fast. I see that with my kids already, and uh, I'm not willing to, to make that sacrifice. It's just not who I am, right? Um, I love my job every single day. I feel blessed that I could actually deal with a lot of different challenges, do some really crazy things and meaningful things things um and um and and then after this term you know if there's an opportunity to stay or to have higher office in new jersey or stay involved in an appointed position in new jersey i would do that um or i would go back into the private sector but probably not to finance again you know i'd probably want to do something a little bit more rewarding you know personally fulfilling than just saying hey um, i'm trying to make money I'll make movies with me you know i'm open to it <laughs> i don't know much about it but it's always interested me Speaking of movies, for a little bit of fun here, um, and for a uh, for a gentleman who spurned Rutgers in favor of the Harvard of SUNY's Binghamton, <laughs> um, Oliver Stone, Roger pointed out last night, is has a similar story to yours. And Roger, oh really? What is that story? Yeah. Well, Oliver Stone, you know, I was just going to say, the, in retrospect, Oliver Stone was at Harvard, and he quit during the uh, beginning of the Vietnam war, he actually quit to enlist into the, into the, uh, to the army, not the Marines to uh, <clears throat> join the Vietnam war. I mean, that's, wow. he, he just, he quit Harvard. And uh, I guess we wouldn't have the movie platoon or any of his career, I guess, uh, with about that experience or born on the 4th of July, which is a, you know, I know it's wrong Kovic story, but uh, it's also a conduit to his own story. So it, um, it's just a thought that came to me last night when they said, you know, 9-11, you saw something happen, you joined the, the Marines, and uh, you got a career started, became mayor of Jersey City. It's kind of a similar story to Stone. Wow. Look at that. Which, uh, which uh, begs the question, though, uh, as far as um, the, the office of the mayor in any city depicted on television, can we all agree maybe the fifth season of The Wire does it the best? Of, the, of them all. Why would you say that? I'm curious. It was fascinating. I've never seen a peek into it. I mean, I believe those guys were uh, writers for the Baltimore Sun who wrote that. Yeah, show. yeah, they have they had a good and, grasp uh, of what's going on. David Simon, and, that's right. Yeah, and, they, and, and I mean, it was just a really interesting peek behind the curtain, I thought, into what it is to run a big city. You know, Baltimore and Jersey City. I can't, very similar, I very, very right, similar very size similar. and... and Port yeah, cities and, 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 yep. and everything else. And, uh, you know, I, I just find it fascinating. You know, you, 
Pete, you're talking Tommy Carcetti, correct? <laughs> oh, yeah. of course, Tommy Carcetti. I'm not drawing no, any Peter, parallels. Peter, there's, there's a great scene. I don't know if you remember it in, in The Wire. Um, I do. I, I just rewatched it last year during the <laughs> pandemic. So, yes. So, so it's when uh, Carcetti is talking to the ex-mayor that ran that one term, and they're sitting at the bar, and he's like, well, you know, why didn't you run again? You had a good organization. You had this and you had that. And then he tells that story about the first day that he was in, in, in the office as the mayor. And he's in this like nice uh, mayor's office, wood paneling. You could see it behind me. Looks pretty good. <laughs> and there's a knock on the door. You remember this scene? Where, where yeah, absolutely. The <laughs> and the guy comes in with a bowl and he a looks bowl. and he's like, oh, that looks terrible. It's a bowl of shit, right? And he's like, what am I supposed to do with that? Well, this is from, you know, the Polish community. So, you got to eat it, <laughs> right? And then, then he's like, all right. So I ate it. And then there's another knock on the door, right? It's and another bowl again, of shit. Yeah, exactly. Again and again and again. But you know what? Look, the, the, the job. Wait, let me ask that. Do yeah. you find that comparable? <laughs> Look, I, I feel like there's there's a lot of times that, um, you know, the job entails sometimes that you, you, you got to do things that, that maybe under normal circumstances you would think differently about. Right. I think that's fair. Right. Like it's just the nature of politics, unfortunately. But um but, you know, there's also a lot of benefits in like in, in the sense that like you really do get to see some like really crazy changes. You know, next week we have like I can't get too into it, but like we're going to have like a really significant announcement on culture and arts that, um, you know, I, I think will be I know will be, you know, significant. Wait a minute. You, you can know. actually say because this will come out after that announcement. <laughs> well, you know, I can't get too into it because I've signed a lot okay, of things, okay, okay. But, but, you know, of, of international news, right? And um, those sort of things, like, you know, you work on and you see it to fruition is really rewarding. So, yeah, you do eat a lot of shit, but at the same time, you know, there, there are a lot of, like, rewarding components of it, a lot. A lot. And there's a lot of there's a lot of challenges, right? You know, like, we have the gun violence issues that um, other cities do across uh, the country, Um maybe not as bad our police department has done a really good job but well, we, i saw we definitely... we, somebody pointed out on our team i think it was dan that uh you're but you have gun control was is under like you you have a very good record recently of yeah, gun, yeah. Of, of lack of gun violence yeah we, we have i mean this year homicides are up but like marginally and they're, they're most of them are happening inside so they're not like gun violence on the street and some of them are kind of like quirky homicides so the numbers are higher but it's not necessarily the traditional type of gun violence but um you know look stabbings you, you, are up st stabbing <laughs> right like we had some we, it's we not funny weird... but i'm laughing because it's yeah no, i got like, a dark sense of humor it's true it's true but like you know what we we you know you deal with those families and you, you, you the the like on a personal level and it's hard not to really get moved by it and feel it. And in some ways, it's like you feel like you fail them or I fail them when, when something happens like that. And it's hard not to take it personally because you know that, um, you know, there, there's major losses and, and often it's young people that are that are the casualties of this. So um, those are the hard parts about the job. Steve, yes, I know I we're, we're, we're getting close to the end of your time here. Uh, just some more fun stuff. I know we talked a lot on some of the heavier uh higher uh thinking issues but um can you give us a good mike tyson story i know that he likes to come and see you when he's in town and can yeah. you talk a little bit about like some of the live music coming back i know it's going to be great to have like the stagehands and the musicians 
anything yeah. you can highlight uh that's yeah. happening in your town and yeah, uh, we'd love yeah. a good tyson story too of course well yeah you who doesn't love tyson right i mean <laughs> yeah. it's like uh his second act or, or whatever maybe one on the third act here has been really really phenomenal so um, I saw him last week, as we touched on touched on earlier. He was in Jersey City. He always he goes to the same bar um, called Ringside on the west side of Jersey City. It's really not a nice place, but he keeps his pigeons there. And and the okay. owner of it um, is this guy Mario Costa, who was very close to Customato and part of that whole Tyson crew when Tyson was really starting. So so Mike has like a very very uh, family type feel with Mario. And uh, it's a different level of trust. And so um, when he comes to New York, that's where he hangs out at ringside. So, you know, the first time I met him was uh, I ran into Mario at this uh, at this diner and he happened to be with Mike Tyson. And um, I just got elected and they, they this Mike Tyson. Of course, I know who he is. Uh, <laughs> do you want to join us? I said, no, I got to go to the senior event. And um, Mike Tyson was like, uh, you know, where's the senior event? I'll join you. Right. I remember and, that. Uh, yes. and, and I was like, all right, well, it's on it's Patterson, uh, you know, senior center. Here's the address. Or he's like, all right, I'm going to finish uh, eating and I'll see you there in like a half hour. And of course, I was like, this guy's never going to show up. I just assumed that uh, that he had no interest. And a half hour later, he like rolls into the senior center, just like a random guy starts interacting with like the seniors. Just He's like a really nice guy. And uh, I, I, I feel like. It's kind you know, of ironic because the hurricane, uh, the boxer from the uh, um, the Bob Dylan song, his name's escaping me right now. I think he's from Patterson, isn't he? Ruben Hurricane Ruben Carter. Carter. Ruben Hurricane Ruben Carter. Carter. Patterson, another, right. another, yeah, but like, look, he's a, he's a nice guy who paid his dues because he was convicted of doing some terrible things, and 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 I think that what he's tried to do, where he is today, at least in Jersey City, is like get involved in prisoner reentry programs, second chance programs, to come to like some, like I said, some of the senior events. And, and my interaction with him has been positive. And people sometimes ask me like, all right, you like you, you, you this guy is, you know, in today's world um, where, where, you know, we had the Me Too movement and he's a convicted rapist. And I say, look, you know, he paid his dues at the end of the day. He was convicted, he did time um, and he's entitled to get a fresh start at this point and and see what he makes with that second or third act. And and from the Jersey City standpoint, he's volunteering and trying to be helpful, which which I appreciate. Did, right? did you see him in the movie Ip Man 3? <laughs> <laughs> no. It, it, was, it was great watching him actually act in the, against the, the I forget the... Uh, the main actor but it's it's a fun performance Mike and steve uh, any cool interesting concerts or uh oh, so, so we, we, we are we are renovating let me tell you this you'll, you'll appreciate this in journal square which is the heart of the city yep, we I've have uh, a theater there that was uh, opened in 1929 and it was one of the five uh, lowe's wonder theaters across the country and there's one in brooklyn that was renovated by bloomberg and we had one that was in disrepair. So we just signed an agreement with the uh, New Jersey Devils. It's actually the Prudential Center. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're going to put $72 million into creating this uh, back to what it was in 1929. So it's got that really magical feel of kind of the roaring 20s. And then um, it'll be like a 3,000-seat live music venue wow. uh, right on top of the uh, Journal Square Path. So eight minutes from like Midtown Manhattan. And, and uh, the Prudential Center is going to manage it so they're going to they think about it like it's a totally 
complementary asset to you know the rock where they it's like 15 16,000 people this is a different feel type of show but you could really attract some kind of real meaningful talent coming through there so i'm excited about it it's a great project for the city and, and hopefully we get back to kind of like you know having live artists very very soon yeah yeah yeah, we've seen a lot of dates out west. Yeah, we've seen a lot of seen a lot of dates for bands out west and like down south. But you know, obviously, we're going to need that back in the northeast soon, right? You think, George? You think people are going to feel comfortable like going to a venue in that you do? Like, I do. I mean, I I have no problem with it. And uh, I mean, dude, if you can't go out and enjoy a, a concert, a performance, or you can't enjoy a, a sporting event, I mean, you know, you. Can you hide under your bed? I mean, obviously you want to be safe. You want to be respectful of others, but you know, Steve, I've been to Phoenix recently. I've been to Houston. I mean, we're talking Houston is the fourth biggest city in the United States and people are respectful and they're courteous and, but the sun is coming up every day. You know, I hear every day about, you know, the, the tragedies and the horrors and Fauci says you have to wear two masks in Phoenix. I felt kind of foolish wearing a mask because no one does and everyone's content. Everyone's happy. Everyone's fine. Have you heard of any horror stories coming out of Phoenix, Arizona? I mean, I haven't. Maybe I haven't been paying attention. I hear you. It's fair. Yeah. So fair. Um, I can I use Disneyland as a barometer, Steve. They opened it up recently and it's been packed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Disneyland yeah, are just is craving, I guess, packed. to get back to normal. That's what it is, right? Stephen, one, one quick question, uh, completely unrelated. But it yeah. has to be asked is, um, you know, New York City is known for its pizza, but I understand there's a place uh, in Jersey City that might claim the top spot of pizza. Yeah. What, what would that place be? All right. So let me just tell you really quick, Peter. So uh, uh, Food and Wine <laughs> did a, uh, a rating of the country's best pizza, the states with the best pizza. New Jersey ranked number one which was kind of like a blow to New York. It was actually New Jersey. <laughs> it was actually New Jersey, then Connecticut, and then New York, if I remember wow. correctly. And uh, in New Jersey, like the New York Times did a, a review. This is like four years ago. They did a food review and they said, the best pizza in New York is actually in Jersey City. And the name of the place is Raza. Yeah. And uh, it is amazing. It is right outside the grocery path. And I've never met somebody that takes more pride in like making a pizza than Dan, who is the owner there, in the fact that, he, I mean, how, and he chooses the tomatoes to make the sauce. I mean, it is like a process for him. Like the guy cares so much about each individual ingredient. And it's Love a small it. place. He's not looking to expand it because it's just, it is what it is. You know, that's, so that's it. I'm getting pizza for breakfast. The pri the pride of Jersey City. Uh, uh, Danny mean, Danny Cohen over there. He he's been uh, he's been informing us about Raz's. He's we gotta we gotta find out. And uh, that's a quite an endorsement. That's awesome. I, nothing like yeah, a good pizza. Yeah. yeah, we we actually got two that are like nationally ranked. Raza is the, is usually like in the top five in the country. But yeah. what, what's that? What's that chain in Times Square? It's like, there's probably like twenty of them around the city. Sabaros. No, not raised pizza. Raised pizza. It's a. Yeah, it's probably like they got raised pizza, and then I think uh, original Familia? raised pizza. Like they <laughs> yeah, not, it was like a com competition. George, that's right, right? That's well, no, yeah. Yeah. in yeah. Brooklyn where I lived, it was called not raised pizza. Yeah, <laughs> right. original raised, famous raised, and then they'll spell it R E Y. Steve, right. I know you really got to go. I really appreciate yeah. your time. Um, do you have a record player by any chance? Because one thing we like to do is give away music. Uh, if you have a record player.
I'd like to give something to you that you probably would appreciate. We got Springsteen's. Oh. Uh, Send it. Send Asbury it. Park. When we get Send off, I'll, I'll have Nancy send uh, the office address. And uh, just real quickly, are you looking forward to the summer on the shore? Like, what what, what are your summer plans locally? Yeah, it's going to be exciting I mean, to have everything back, right? Yeah, yeah. So, look, I spend some time at the shore. My in-laws or my, my kids' grandparents uh, live in Rhode Island. So we have a place up there. And uh, my wife is from Narragansett. And wow, so we beautiful. get up there a decent amount. Um, not far from where you live, I suppose, yeah. George, right? I'd love to, I'd love to relive our days at Cyril's. What, what a place that was, Steve. <laughs> and, you know, we, we were really lucky that, that, I mean, do you remember anything about that, that Montauk bar Cyril's? I mean, I have I a picture of us. George, there. I remember yeah. everything. I yeah. remember everything. Yeah. Whether it was yes. Belmar, whether it was Montauk and Steve, it's just, I really appreciate your time. I'm so happy for you, man. And it, it's uh -oh. so nice. And How is Schroeder? Um, yeah. Ryan Schroeder uh i would love to get him on i don't know if he would him and steo together i mean uh this summer when i was going to see you guys i was actually working for them i was like their grunt they were they were painting houses this guy we knew i remember kind of yeah. common he was an offensive lineman for fordham his name was rob wolf and he was this big imposing guy and he was schroeder ryan schroeder's brother's good friend and he put steel and schroeder to work in the summer of 96 and i was so jealous of those guys they were making money there meanwhile the people out in the hamptons have these two of like would you want those two guys around your multi-million dollar house <laughs> like those guys like steel would be at the top of the ladder he said i need some paint schroeder would dip it in the paint can and throw it up to him like a boomerang i'm like what are you guys doing so the second year they said george will let you in they, they get hazed me gave me a hard time you know how those guys are and that summer when I went down to Belmar with you, they're like, George, be ready. It's Mission X, Mission X. I'm like, what is Mission X? They wouldn't tell me, but uh, Schroeder is great. He has a really good career. He's working for Broadridge, uh, the financial yeah. service provider. They do a lot of, um, you know, financial statements for publicly traded companies, but he's exactly the same, but, you know, has a family, serious, but uh, it would be great to get all you guys together and uh, yeah, we should figure that out. And the, and the, and, the, and the SUNY Binghamton guys too, like Seth and Farina. And I mean, those guys are great. I mean, we had just so much fun with those guys. I did personally. And, you know, dude, I'm really happy for you. And it, it's really refreshing to see someone that's not pursuing this for, you know, insatiable avarice, you know, someone that, it, you know, you're doing it for the right reasons, man. I think it's very, palpable when you talk and the time that we had with you today that your motives are genuine and uh, I'm really excited for you and uh, I appreciate your time and it's great to uh, just reconnect like this and you know you don't have to do stuff like this but you do and I think it's important for you know just regular people to be able to interact with their their leaders yep. the thought leaders and civic leaders and uh, yeah man I just want to say thank you. And, hey, guys, uh, thank you. Yeah, This was terrific, George. Th thank you for inviting me, and, and great to connect with you guys, and, and hopefully we can do it soon, all right? Yeah. It, was, yeah. it, was, it was a pleasure, Stephen. Uh, Roger's going to take us out with a couple words, but uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a great pleasure meeting you, man. All thank right, you very much care. for your time. I really Thanks, appreciate your time, sir. It, it, it was a, Actually, it was a real pleasure talking to you, and uh, hopefully um, you can continue your success in your career and whatever it is that you're going to do post office. Thanks. <laughs> All um, right. Thank you for following the $5 buzz on this today's uh, wonderful episode. Um, if you have any comments, questions regarding this episode or any others, please email us at 
$5 buzz and that's F-I-V-E-D-O-L-L-A-R-B-U-Z-Z at gmail.com. And we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Thank you and have a wonderful day. Mm-hmm.